Welcome to Grace Point Church Podcast. We proclaim Christ crucified and uphold him as the only hope for the fallen world. Hi everyone and welcome back to our GG reading. This is Christ's Call to Discipleship by James Montgomery Boyce. Today we are starting a new section, The Cost of Discipleship, and we are in chapter 9, which is titled Counting the Cost. Uh, This is in page 113 to page 123 counting the costs. James quotes from Luke 14, 28-23, and I read, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? Or if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a derogation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything, he he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 28-33, and we begin. I was talking with a distinguished missionary doctor who was commenting on Christian work in his area of the world. According to him, there is much valuable work being done, and the people doing it are honest and dedicated believers. But there is one thing that is lacking. We want so much to win the people to Christ, he said, that we are watering down the gospel to the point where believing in Christ hardly means anything. There is no repentance, no change of life. It is easy to become Christ follower. I was interested in this man's opinion because, as I assured him, the same thing is true of much of gospel preaching here. One person who has challenged what he calls today's synthetic gospel is Walter J. Chantry. In today's gospel, authentic or sedentic, Chantry examines Christ's encounter with a rich young man recorded in Mark 10, 17-27. And he concludes that his approach was radically different from what most evangelicals do in similar situations. The man was clean-cut and honest. He wanted to be saved. In that kind of encounter, most of today's evangelicals would give the inquirer a three- or four-step presentation of the gospel. Ask him to make a personal commitment to Jesus Christ and send him away with the assurance of salvation. Jesus did nothing of the sort. He first challenged the young man in regard to his conception of God. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. He comforted him with God's law. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Then he called for repentance and faith in himself. Go, sell sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Chantry points out that Jesus demanded this turning from everything to himself as a condition of discipleship for everyone. Because it fails to declare this cost. Much of today's church is in preaching Jesus' gospel. 
start with the subtitle here. What is the cost? What is the cost? When a person becomes altered to the teaching about cost in Christ's discourses, he is amazed at how extensive it is. Jesus did not make following him an easy matter. Following him involved radical life changes. Everything he said about discipleship implied this costly change. It was denying oneself, taking up a cross, and following him, as you see in Luke 9, 22. Jesus said many specific things about salvation's costs. Again, we see it here in this reading. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able... He will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for the terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Again quoting Luke 14, 28-33. According to this statement, there are a few things that we see. One, there is a cost to discipleship. Second, there is a failure to see this cost. Uh, sometimes, sorry, a failure to see this cause some cause some to start out in the direction of the Christian life without adequate understanding and commitment, and as a result of which they later fall away and perish. And that the cost must be paid if a person is to be Christ's disciple and be saved. So three things here. One, there is a cost to discipleship. A failure to see this causes some to start out in the direction of the Christian life without adequate understanding and commitment, as a result of which they later fall away and perish. And three, the cost must be paid if a person is to be Christ's disciple and be saved. What a furor this raises in some evangelical circles. It is because the mention of cost sounds like a work's salvation, which is, of course, soundly condemned in Scripture. And evangelicals do not want the gospel to be destroyed in this manner. One writer says, any teaching that demands a change of conduct toward either God or man for salvation is to reward our works or human effort to faith, and this contradicts all scripture and is an accursed message. Such people rightly want to rule out any gospel that is not sola scriptula, that is according to scripture alone, sola fidei, by faith in Jesus Christ alone, and sola gratia, by the grace of God alone. But let us look at each of these distinctives. We start with Sora Scriptula. This means by scripture alone. It affirms that the written word of God, that is the Bible, is the only fully authoritative rule for Christians. Particularly, it is supreme over any church or teachings or traditions. This is an important doctrine, of course. Protestants especially value it. But it is evident that if scripture, being the word of God, is supreme, that it is supreme not only over other people and other traditions, but over me and my traditions. And this means that I must give up anything in my thought or practice that is contrary to scripture if I would follow Christ. This is what the, the Apostle Paul did. 
He said of his spiritual warfare, the weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ, as you see in 2 Corinthians 10:45. We must pay the cost of the destruction of our own religious opinions to be a Christian. Sora Scriptura also embraces the doctrine of repentance. For repentance means turning from sin, including sinful thoughts, to follow Jesus. It means renouncing and repudiating what you have thought, but now consider to be contrary to God's revelation. There is a great error in the modern church at this point. When the gospel is preached, it is customary to speak about forgiveness, saying that we must confess our sin and turn to God, where alone we can find forgiveness for that sin. That is true enough, of course. 1 John 1 9 teaches it. But what is equally true and yet not frequently said is that the gospel also requires repentance, which is not mere confession of sin, but is a turning from it as well. The Greek word for repentance actually means a change of mind. Repentance was the burden of John the Baptist's preaching. He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as you see in Luke 3, verse 3. When Jesus began his public ministry, his own message was, The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Mark 1, verse 15. Later, the disciples went out and preached that people should repent. Mark 6, verse 12. Peter declared, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Acts 3, 19. On Mass Hill, The Apostle Paul said, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Acts 17, verse 30. On what basis did the early preachers of the gospel, including the Lord Jesus Christ, call for repentance and demand a change of mind? Solely on the revelation given by God in Scripture. What Scripture condemns must be repudiated. What Scripture commends must be affirmed. No one can have Sora Scriptura without paying a cost in the intellectual and moral realms. The second one we see is Sola Fidei. The second great, uh, great distinctive is Sola Fidei. It teaches that salvation is by the work of Christ received through faith alone. To protect this truth, some teachers repudiate any thought of cost in obtaining salvation. But saving faith is not merely intellectual belief, as we have seen several times already. It is a living union with Christ, who is both Savior and Lord. It involves commitment to Him. No one can be a follower of Jesus who clings to lesser loyalties. One cost we must be willing to pay in this area is the loss of world's good opinion. Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote of this in an excellent exposition. Of Luke 14:28, and I quote: "A man must be content to be thought ill of by man if he pleases, uh, if it pleases God. Um, he must count it no strange thing to be mocked, ridiculed, slandered, persecuted, and even hated. He must not be surprised to find his opinions and practices in religion despised and held up to scorn." 
he must submit to be thought by many a fool, an enthusiast, and a fanatic, to have his words perverted and his action misrepresented. In fact, he must not he must not marvel if some call him mad. The master says, Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will also keep yours. See this in John 15, verse 20. It is always unpleasant to be spoken against and forsaken and lied about and to stand alone. But there is no help for it. The cup which our master drank must be drunk by his disciples. They must be despised and rejected of men, as we see in Isaiah 53, verse 3. Let us settle down that item last in our account. To be a Christian will cost a man the favor of the world. End of quote. The third one is Sora Gracia. But this teaches that salvation is by the grace of God alone, with no mixture of human works added to it. Ah, oh, says someone, that is exactly what you've been contending for, no good works. When you talk about the cost of discipleship, of paying a price for salvation, you are saying that there is something to be done, some work to be performed, without which one cannot be a Christian. No, that is not the point. In fact, it is a 180 degree distortion. Sora gratia means that it is precisely these good works that must be given up. The cost to the believer is his own self-righteousness. This is a high cost to pay, and many will not pay it. When Dr. Herbert McKeel first came to the pulpit of the First Presbyterian Church of Shendekte, New York, and began to preach the gospel as it had not been preached for many years prior to his coming, a woman who was a long-time member accosted him after a morning service. Mr. Mikhail, she said, I am leaving this church and I'm never coming back. No man is ever going to call me a miserable sinner. She will not pay the price of her self-righteousness. It is not hard to be an outward Christian. That costs hardly a cent. A person can go to church once or twice on a Sunday and pretend to be terribly applied during the week. He can serve on a committee when asked. He can sign his name to pledge when the church or the United Fund or some other charity is raising money. That even has rewards. We get a good opinion from others. There is no self-denial, no sacrifice here. If this kind of mere outward Christianity is all it takes to gain heaven, then as Riley suggests, we must alter our Lord's words to read, Wide is the gate and broad is the Lord that leads to heaven. We must imagine Jesus saying to the rich young man, You lack nothing, keep what you have, and you have treasure in heaven too. We must suppose him to teach you can serve God and money. Riley writes though, It does, not, uh, it does cost something to be a Christian according to the standard of the Bible. There are enemies to be overcome, battles to be fought. Sacrifices to be made, an Egypt to be forsaken, a wilderness to be passed through, a cross to be carried, a race to be run. Conversion is not putting a man in an armchair and taking, his, taking him easily to heaven. It is the beginning of a mighty conflict in which it costs much to win the victory. End of quote. This is why Jesus urges us to count the cost 
and see if we are prepared to give up everything we have to be his disciples. We go to another subtitle, avoiding the costs, avoiding the costs. The second point in Jesus' words about counting the costs is that many fail to think the cost through. They start out in the direction of Christian life with an inadequate commitment. Later, pull back in terms of difficulty, and so they perish. There are those in whom the seed of the word is sown, and in whom it quickly springs up, producing an interest in spiritual things. But the cares of the world later arise like thorns to choke it out, or persecutions like a hot near eastern sun arrive to scorch it. The Bible and life itself provide numerous examples. When the people of Israel left Egypt under the leadership of Moses, thousands left in the great excitement, but did not count the cost. So when the traveling nation encountered dangers, deprivation, and delay, they were discouraged and soon wanted to turn back. More than this, they complained against God and Moses, longing for the leeks and garlic of their former lives. All but a small number of the Israelites never reached this promised land. Many were judged directly and immediately by God. Thousands perished in their sins. When Jesus first came preaching the good news, many went out after him and for a time appeared to be his followers. They marveled at his words. They were astonished at his power. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah soon to usher in the great age of the Jewish blessing. But the more they listened, the more difficult and unpalatable his teaching appeared. They wanted Christ without repentance. So for want of counting the cost, as scripture says, from this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. John 6:66. 6, King Herod perished in this fashion. Mark says that Herod was impressed by John the Baptist and even enjoyed listening to him. Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. You see in Mark 6, verse 20. But Herod would not pay the cost of discipleship. He was living with Herodias, his brother's wife, and he was not willing to give her up. He cherished his sins and so did in de- died in them. Demas found the fellowship of the gospel too costly. At the beginning, he was impressed with the adventure of carrying Christianity throughout the known world. And when the Apostle Paul invited him to go along on one of his missionary journeys, Demas must have been thrilled. It was a compliment to go with Paul. Alas, Demas did not reckon on the difficulties. So when the Apostle was imprisoned, Demas began to long for the things the world has to offer and thus forsook both Paul and Paul's master. Paul wrote, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica, as we see in 2 Timothy 4.10. I fear that this is an all too frequent pattern today. Children of Christian parents, raised with the knowledge of spiritual things, frequently give verbal assent to Christianity. But the allure of the world comes along, and they discover that the cost of continuing with Christ is more than they are willing to pay. They want the world's grammar, the world's good opinion, the world's rewards. They drift away. Products of an easy evangelism often do the same. 
There's a good evangelism. I am for it. Many are genuinely converted in mass meetings. But there are others. The best evangelists readily admit this is so, who start out as apparent followers of Jesus, perhaps genuinely moved by a sense of their own need and God's grace, but who do not follow through. Their unsaved friends pull at them, temptation beckons, and little by little they fall away. They are seen less and less frequently at meetings. They attend, the attendance at Bible study becomes increasingly sporadic. Eventually, they perish because they do not count the cost of being Christ's disciples and are never truly committed to Him. Our last subtitle here, Paying the Costs. Paying the Costs. The point of this examination of the cost of following Christ is not to discourage anyone from following Him. However, it is rather to encourage you to follow Jesus to the end. To do that, we must count the cost by all means, but we must pay it joyfully and willingly, knowing that this must be done if a person is to be saved. Bishop Riley, who also listed the examples of those in Scripture who fell away from their profession, pressed his listeners to examine their religion, the religion they follow, and turn from it if it costs nothing. He pressed them to turn to Christ. And I quote, Very likely, your religion costs you nothing. Very probably, it neither costs you trouble, nor time, nor thought, nor care, nor pains, nor reading, nor praying, nor self-denial, nor conflict, nor working, nor labor of any kind. Such a religion as this will never save your soul. It will never give you peace while you live, nor hope while you die. It will not support you in the day of affliction, nor cheer you in the hour of death. A religion which costs nothing is worth nothing. Awake before it is too late. Awake and repent. Awake and be converted. Awake and believe. Awake and pray. Rest not till you can give a satisfactory answer to my question. What does it cost? End of quote. I challenge you to add it up. Make a balance sheet and list the costs. Know what you are getting into, but at the same time list the benefits that Christ brings. What must I pay to be a Christian? I must pay the price of my self-righteousness, no longer counting myself a good person, but rather one who has transgressed God's righteous laws and is therefore under the sentence of his wrath and condemnation. But when I pay the price of my self-righteousness, I gain Christ's, Christ's righteousness which is perfect and imperishable. In that righteousness, I can stand before the throne of God and be unafraid. I must pay the price of those sins I now cherish. I must give them up, every one. I cannot cling to a single sin and pretend at the same time I am following the Lord Jesus Christ. But in place of my sins, I find holiness, without which no one can see the Lord, as we see in Hebrews 12.14. I come to know the joy of holiness are the empty mockery of transgressions. I must pay the price of my understanding of life, of what it is all about, and of what ultimately matters. I must surrender my confused and contradictory opinions to the revelation of God in Scripture. I must never attempt to correct or second-guess God. But when I do bring every thought into captivity to Christ, I find true liberation. As Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 8, 32. I must pay the price 
of this world's friendship. I will be in the world, but not of it. I will know that the world is no friend of grace to lead me on to God, but that it will always keep me from Him. Indeed, I must not only forsake the world, I must despise it for the sake of following after God. A hard price. Yes, but in the place of friendship of this world, I have friendship of Christ. He said to his disciples, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. He said, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. John 15:15. 15, 15. Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. I must pay the price of my plans for my life. I have many ideas of what I want to do and be, but I must give them up all. I cannot both run my life and also have Jesus run it. Jesus is Lord of all unless he is Lord of all in my life. He is not Lord at all. If he is not Lord, he is not Savior. My plans must go, yes. But in place of those flawed plans, Jesus has a perfect plan that will both bless me and help others. I must pay the price of my own will. That sinful, selfish will must go entirely. But in this place comes that good, pleasing, and perfect will of God, as we see in Romans 12, verse 2. At the beginning of this chapter, I told of a conversation I had with that missionary doctor who complained about the sad watering of the gospel in his area of the world. At one point in the discussion, he said that he had been thinking about what was the minimum amount of doctrine or belief of a, pers- a person had to have to be a Christian. He asked my opinion. I told him that a number of years ago, I would have answered as I suppose the vast majority of today's evangelicals would answer. I would have said, well, it is necessary to recognize that you are a sinner and that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died to save you from sin. You must commit your life to him. Of course, that is still a perfectly valid answer. Many millions of Christians have been saved by doing precisely that. Because Jesus takes us where we are and teaches us the fullness of what commitment means as we go on. But I replied that when I answer that question today, I say that the minimum amount a person must believe to be a Christian is everything. And that the minimum amount a person must give is all. I say, you must give it all. You cannot hold back even a fraction of a percentage of yourself. Every sin must be abandoned. Every false thought must be repudiated. You must be the Lord's entirely. In this life, you may go through days in which the world and perhaps even yourself in low moments will think that you made a bad bargain. But it is no bad bargain. The day will come in which you and the entire created universe we see clearly on which side the prophet lies. That is the end of the book. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gracepoint Church Podcast. For more information and for past episodes, please check our website, Gracepoint Church.com.